He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. Those are verses 7 to 11 of Psalm 105, the first 22 verses of which are the psalm appointed for today, Thursday, June the 2nd, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate it very much. I uh, hope you're having a great one. We're continuing our look here as we approach Pentecost. We're uh, taking a look today at uh, Ezekiel's prophecy. Today we're in chapter 18, the first four verses, and then verses 19 to 32, so it's quite a long reading today. Um, that We are still in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, and still in the Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 7, verses 18 to 28. <clears throat> so Ezekiel is... Um, now continuing his prophecy to the people. And he's announcing a bit of a change in the way God relates to his people. And he's already announced it in the previous chapter when he talked about giving them a new heart, giving them a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone so that they would want to keep his commandments. And so here we go. Now he says, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Quote, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So that proverb would indicate that, that the children are paying for the sins of the fathers. That's, that's what that means. The, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. So there's not going to be generational punishment. God's going to deal with things swiftly. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right, has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. So we're not going to be punished for the sins of others in our family line. Now, I know of ministries that that mm, mm, <laughs> do things that, that I don't care for, and, it, and it's not because they intend to in, in most cases, but in some cases it, it, it's so confusing. They want to cleanse a generational line of sin, and so people can come to the conclusion that there's sin that just runs through, and it's a punishment because it happened in a previous generation. That's not the case. Now, there are things like alcoholism, which run through families. There are things like other things that, that run through families. It tends to be people who abuse their wives tend to have grown up in situations where moms were abused by dads. And so this stuff just goes on. But, but you're not cleansing the line. You're not going back and getting anybody forgiven. We're not Mormons. We, we don't get baptized on behalf of someone else. They're, these things are not the way it works. And so nobody gets cleaned up in the past. But there's a there's a good in recognizing generational patterns and deciding to be the one who will break it, but then also being careful in going forward. And so it, it's but here God specifically is saying that, that I'm going to deal with people as individuals. So I'm not going to punish you for what your father did. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. We're each individually accountable, and we're also each individually dealt with by God. 
He said, but if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what's just and right, he will surely live. He will not die. So if you repent and turn around and do the right things rather than the wrong things, then you will live and not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. In other words, forgiveness is real. God forgives us completely. Those things are not remembered, he says, for the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Does that mean it's a works-based thing? No, it's faith beginning to end because who's going to forgive the sin? And who's going to move forward? believing that they have been forgiven, one who has faith. So it it always requires faith in order to do this. But the intention is not that we would just stop life. No, no, no. We turn around, go in a different direction. We we are obedient then to the commands of God. We we begin to do things that he commanded and to not do things he commanded not to do. So the righteous acts that we do matter. They're not what save us. But it's the the righteous acts that we do matter. It shows that we have faith. It shows that we believe that God's truly forgiven us and that he's truly God and that he's truly good because we then accept his commandments as good. And the proof is we do them. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? I mean, that's the thing, is that people paint this picture of God that he he sort of joyously punishes people when, when it's not the case. You're making choices. You know, that's the issue is we're making choices. You choose to die. I choose to live, right? I mean, that's the way it works. So, but when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered. For the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, then he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from the transgressions that he committed, he shall surely live. He will not die. Jesus tells a parable at one point about two different people, right? Two different sons. And the father asks the sons to do something. One says, okay, I'll do that. And then he doesn't. And the other person says, I'm not going to do it. But then ultimately he does. That This is that situation. Exactly that situation. It's not a matter of giving lip service. It's doing that matters. And so this is exactly what he's talking about. He's considered and turned away from the transgression that he had committed. He will die and not live. He will live and not die. Yet the house of Israel says the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? And this is exactly what what it feels like in the beginning of judgment. You know, I'm innocent, right? I, I didn't do anything wrong. And then you start to, well, actually consider... Things over time, and then you realize, yeah, I did. I'm not innocent at all. You know, if you're honest about things, you know, you, you can't continue to hold grievances against God because we're none of us are innocent. And so, it's important that we recognize God's discipline against us as something that that we deserve and we need if we're to turn. And a loving God doesn't allow us to continue in that forever. He He straightens us out. And he disciplines us so that we would consider the truth. And we would consider then the way of the Lord is just. 
And it was, well, me that was the problem. Therefore, I'll judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. I mean, it's as simple as that, right? It's turn or burn. Um, <laughs> but but that's, that's the word of the loving God to the people he's in covenant with. Turn around. I don't want you to be lost, and therefore I'm sending you prophets. I'm giving you a warning. I'm telling you what's going to happen. Fix it. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you've committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. So you could say turn or burn, right? I mean, you could hear that. But, But God's saying it because he loves them. He doesn't want them to die. He wants them to understand, and he wants them to believe and understand that he is good and just. In the uh, gospel today, a lawyer stands up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And this lawyer is not somebody who's speaking about Roman law. He's speaking about Jewish law. So it it would be somebody who who would practice, his practice of law would have to do with uh, Jewish law. He said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? The question, remember, is, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Other places we read that, that the person who asked that question is the rich young ruler. That's the question on his lips. This time it's a lawyer who's asking this same thing. He said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and, all your, and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Get those things right. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and your neighbor is yourself. Do those things, you'll be fine. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See, these are the kinds of questions legal scholars in Jewish law ask. If you're commanded to love your neighbor as yourself, well, one of the things you need to do is you need to define who the neighbor is. I got to figure out who I'm going to love, right? So that's his question. Who's my neighbor? Who, who Who do I have to show that love for? And Jesus replied, and, and it's interesting the way that he does this. A man... Period. A man. What kind of man? Is he a Jewish man? Is he a Samaritan man? Is he a Roman man? What kind of man is he? Because I'd like to know what kind of man he is. Because that way I would know, you know, how I feel about him to start with. But Jesus doesn't tell us that. He just is a man. Was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, why did they do that? Right? They're going up to Jerusalem from Jericho. So, they're going the other way. They're going up to Jerusalem from Jericho. Probably, everybody would assume that, that these guys are going up to provide service in the temple, and, and it would be the chance of a lifetime. For most of these people, because I think I've told you this before, but by the time of Jesus, there were so many priests in the land that that the chances of ever serving actually in the temple, in the holy place where uh, Zechariah John the Baptist's father was, are slim to none. And if you did it once, that was it. You were not eligible to do that ever again. You could do other things in and around the temple service, but the chances of actually serving in the holy place were slim to none. It was a remarkable thing to get an opportunity to ever go in and do that because there were so many of them. And so you wouldn't want to blow it, right? You wouldn't want to blow your opportunity. And and you could, 
this guy's half dead. I'm not sure. What if he dies? If he dies, if I'm, you know, if I go help him and something happens, he's bleeding too. So I got all these problems here. If, if that happens, then I will not be able to fulfill my service in the temple. But as I've told you before, the most important thing in Judaism is actually not service in the temple. It's hospitality. And here that's what's called for. There's this guy. Hmm. I can't come into contact with a dead body. I can't touch blood. I can't do that. So I, I'm sorry, man, but I can't take the chance because it's my big moment. And so they pass him by on the other side. They don't even come close to him. They completely avoid him. We would never do such a thing. We, there are no neighborhoods we avoid. There are no places that we avoid going simply because, well, I don't want to be in that situation. No, I mean, we can live sanitized lives, and we can make sure we live sanitized lives and don't come into contact with stuff like this. But then, so we get the priest and the Levite, and then it says a Samaritan as he journeyed. A Samaritan, remember they hate him. Remember a couple of days ago, the Samaritans wouldn't welcome Jesus because he was going to Jerusalem? So here's a Samaritan. We don't know where he's going. As he journeyed, he came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, so he didn't worry about all this stuff. Now, remember, they have the law. They don't have the temple, but they have the law. Uh, So he would have known this. He would have known that it's it's wrong to—I mean, I'm going to be ritually impure— for a period of time, if I if I do this service to this guy, but he pours on oil and wine, then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him, and then the next day he took out two denarii, the, the some money, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, "Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back." Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So, it, what was the man's question? Remember, who is my neighbor? What's Jesus' answer? Who proved to be a neighbor to the man? Wait a minute. No, I, w- I wanted you to tell me who I could exclude from being my neighbor, who I, who I had to include. Because obviously when I asked you who is my neighbor, I, the, 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 the whole intent of the question implied that I don't think everybody's my neighbor. Because there's a class of people that I have to call neighbor. I want to know who that class is. But Jesus doesn't answer that. He doesn't say who the class is directly. He said, who was the neighbor? The important thing isn't who's my neighbor. The important thing is being a neighbor. It's whoever needs you to be their neighbor. And you do whatever you can to help them. And if you don't, then you don't love your neighbor, period, end of sentence. doesn't matter who that person is. He said the one who showed him mercy was the answer he gave. The one who showed him mercy. He doesn't say the Samaritan. (laughs) That's how much they hate him. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Yeah, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that at all. Uh, No. (laughs) Because, well, that might mean that I don't get the opportunity to do something I've looked forward to all my life. It could cost me something that I want to do. Jesus came to deliver us. He considered us his neighbor. So much so that he sees that we're perishing and that we are struggling and suffering in this world of sin. And he considered us his neighbor and he came. And he did something about our situation. We're the man. That's the thing to see, is that we're the man. And because what Jesus did for us, then we do that for others. That's the commandment. That's the moral of the story. In, in the Hebrews passage, what we get is, is remember that um, what, we, what we've been working on here is Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
And that's a baffling sort of a thing. And so the author of Hebrews, and we don't know who that is for sure, tells us what it means to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then he goes on to say, he's, he's comparing and contrasted the or, priest of Melchizedek's line with the priest of Aaron's line, which is the, the, um, or the, um, the, the priesthood in Judaism. He says, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, uh, the, the covenant that God made with uh, Abraham, as he has said, it came with an oath. God swore on himself that he would fulfill the promises that were made to Abraham, whether Abraham was faithful or not, because Abraham couldn't be perfectly faithful. So it was, it, and this new covenant was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests, those Aaronic priests, were made such without an oath. It's just based on heredity. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, this is from the psalm, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Well, there's only one of those because all the others die. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. It's an eternal covenant because he has an eternal priesthood. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And we know that because of the resurrection and the ascension. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So it, it, the priests would stand there, the, the various priests, after the death of one another would, you know, keep taking their places. And so there, there's that perpetual priesthood, but there's not an eternal priesthood. And the perpetual priesthood depends on one thing, right? It depends on the temple. If there's no temple, being a priest doesn't mean anything at all. Nothing. Because your job was totally connected to the temple. It was providing the sacrifices. It was doing the work in the holy place and trimming the lamps and replacing the showbread and doing the incense. All those kinds of things were involved. The, the maintenance of the temple, the structure and all that kind of stuff, that's all assigned to the priests, the worship of the people. That's the, the things that the priests did were that. And so those things require a temple. So... You know, if you're in the line of Aaron today, well, good for you. You don't have anything to do. It doesn't actually mean anything today except for, well, your descendant comes from Aaron. But but it's not important in the sense that there's no priesthood today. But without a temple, we have Jesus who constantly lives to make intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. So there's a difference between something that's perpetual and something that's eternal. <clears throat> For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, holy. Not a, there, there is no holy other than Jesus. Innocent, no sin. Unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So the offering of sacrifice for the people... He didn't need to make an offering for himself because he was without sin. So the offering that he makes for the people, he also provides, and he does so willingly. God didn't. God is not a child abuser in sending his son to die. No, no, he chose. He laid down his life for us. 
For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The word that he's speaking about, this oath, is from the psalm. And so, therefore, the, the psalms were composed by David in the, in, in the Davidic period, and therefore they come after the giving of the law and the appointing of the Aaronic priesthood. So, but it goes back to the oath God made to Abraham. He swore by himself his own holiness and his own faithfulness. That is the same thing, that God takes the punishment when Jesus goes to the cross. He takes the punishment for sin upon himself, and he did so before the foundation of the world because it was always the plan from before the creation of the world that this would be the apex of history and the apex of salvation history and the apex of God's personal, um, not interventions, not the right word. What am I trying to come up with here? It's God's personal revelation of himself and his love for those he created in his image is found in the face of Jesus. But it was the plan from before there was ever a creation. He loves us so much that we live after Easter and we know the fullness of the revelation of God's love for us. And then he says, now go and do likewise, just as he said to the lawyer that day.